So, for, so just to briefly define what I'm going to talk about is to discuss food, some food allergy conditions and not in any great detail. Talk about primary prevention of food allergies <coughs> such as these key studies and where they fit into your management of food allergy conditions. Evaluating patients uh, in your office with food allergies and, and some of the treatment modalities for these conditions. Um, these are little um, uh, just abbreviations. I'm going to go into some detail on some of those as we go along and then some questions to make sure everybody's uh, paying attention. So food allergies are, are uh, adverse health effects arising from specific immune responses that occur reproducibly on exposure. So the key is immune and the key is reproducible. Uh, food allergens are specific components within foods, and there's uh, some recent research in that area that's been helpful in defining how severe food reactions can be uh, uh, on the basis of, of blood work, uh, and eliciting specific uh, uh, immune reactions resulting in very characteristic symptoms. Uh, food allergies occur along a continuum. There's not just one type of immunologic food reaction. They range from those that are IgE-based to those that are clearly non-IgE antibody-based and those that sort of fit in the middle in between. And those include some of the uh, eosinophilic disorders I'm going to talk about, a little bit, very little bit about EE, um, and, and then we'll, we'll focus mostly on the IgE-mediated conditions and the management of those. So what Clearly, the, the, the main IgE-mediated type reactions are those we're all familiar with by organ systems, cutaneous, gastrointestinal, and they, they progress to more severe conditions such as respiratory, cardiovascular, and central nervous system reactions. Um, the, I think it's important to realize that severe allergic reactions may not necessarily involve respiratory or cardiovascular reactions, but a patient who has flushing, hives, severe abdominal pain is experiencing anaphylaxis and needs to be treated as such. So, you, so to wait until a patient is wheezing or having shortness of breath or lightheadedness um, is, is not, not the best way to manage these conditions. Just briefly about eosinophilic esophagitis or EOE, it's characterized by these symptoms listed here, vomiting, nausea, uh, epigastric or reflux type symptoms, uh, chronic symptoms such as failure to thrive and weight loss, and for generally older patients, older children and adults, dysphagia and actual food impaction where the food need to actually be removed um, uh, in, the, in the ED. Uh, EOE may be associated with specific foods or even with environmental allergies. Uh, they Unfortunately, because if they fit into this mixed IgE, non-IgE con condition, they can't be reliably diagnosed with skin or blood tests. So how can we diagnose EOE? Well, that's really under, under hot debate right now. But it can be managed, obviously, with elimination diets or, obviously, medications. I'm not going to go into any further. I believe you've had lectures, and I know you're going to be having a lecture later this spring by a doctor from CHOP whose uh, expertise is in EOE, and we'll just leave it, we'll leave it there. 
some of the classic non-IgE-mediated food allergy conditions include FPIs, which as you know is a, a condition in which there's a reaction uh, usually two to four hours after ingestion of the food, characterized by vomiting, diarrhea, can lead to severe dehydration and even shock. It usually occurs in the first year of life. It can be due to certain foods such as milk, soy, grains, and the management of these conditions, because it's non-IG mediated, is, is not, this is not anaphylaxis, and it's managed by rehydration supportive care. Uh, FPIs is often mistakenly diagnosed as sepsis, as children come in with, with uh, they're very lethargic, their white count is actually elevated in this condition, they often have a sepsis workup, and it's not until several uh, times that these occur that it's clear that there's a food responsible for it. And then there the, there's uh, food allergy, food protein-induced allergic colitis, which is generally a benign condition of infancy, and of course celiac disease, which is uh, non-IgE-mediated, it's autoimmune, involves uh, IgA uh, antibodies, and um, is intolerance to, to, um, to gluten. So despite all we've been trying to do over the years, food allergy prevalence is, uh, is, is still high, affects 8% of children, 5% of adults. The prevalence and even the severity are increasing. Uh, food allergies have increased by over almost 20% in the past two decades. There are 3 million children allergic to peanut, uh, and uh, food reactions in terms of severity is, are right now the leading cause of ED visits for anaphylaxis. And although fatalities uh, do occur, they're fortunately rare occurrences. Most food allergies listed here, milk, egg, wheat, and soy, resolve by school age, but many times they don't. We see a lot of children who, where, it's, where these allergies are lasting longer, develop uh, and progress into the second decade. I've seen kids in their late teens, early 20s outgrow these allergies. And, um, and obviously some do not develop tolerance at all. Uh, fortunately, de declining low levels of specific IgE um, or skin test size is, is predictive of tolerance. And there's a high likelihood, obviously, of developing other allergic diseases such as food, other food allergies. And as we know, allergic rhinitis and asthma are very common in these kids as well. In contrast, allergies such as peanuts, nuts, fish, and shellfish are rarely outgrown. So what, has, what have we learned in, in recent years about the, the possible prevention of food allergies? Well. The AAP recommended in, in as recently as 2000 to stay away from peanuts and other high allergenic foods in children at risk for atopic disease until they were three years of age. But as we saw, the number of food allergies just continued to increase to peanut and other foods over that period of time. So in 2008, the AAP retracted its recommendations and said there's not enough evidence with which to make any determination. Um, and a very important uh, uh, observational study showed uh, by uh, an author by the name of Dutut in London, Dutuat, I'm sorry, in London, peanut allergy in Jewish children was 10 times higher among 
children in London than Jewish children in Israel in which peanuts were introduced uh, in, in children less than a year of age. So this was very uh, obviously a fascinating observation and led to a, a landmark study and some of those, uh, some of you are, are obviously are familiar with it, and I'll just go over it very briefly here, called the LEAP study, learning early about peanut allergy. And Dutois um, also uh, was a, a lead author in this study, as well as Gideon Lack, um, who uh, actually trained at Einstein the same, at the same time that I was there. And they hypothesized that early introduction of peanut products would help lead to prevention of peanut allergy. And they looked at about over 600 infants aged 4 to 11 months at high risk for peanut allergy, randomized them to receive peanut products or complete avoidance. And the cohorts were the consumption and the avoidance group, as well as children who had negative skin tests and those who had small positive skin tests of peanut. The consumption group was fed 6 grams of peanut protein per week and uh, divided up three times weekly. And what they found was that the overall prevalence of peanut allergy in the avoidance group compared to the consumption group was, was decreased in risk by approximately 80%. Now this was a, a, a very profound observation that answered a lot of questions for us and, and has led to some renewed recommendations as I'm going to just touch on briefly but also raised a number of questions as well. And the first question is, do the protective effects of feeding peanuts early persist? In other words, does tolerance develop? And that was addressed by another study, again by that same group called the LEAP-ON study, and I'll talk to you about that shortly. Should other high allergen foods be introduced early to all infants? Does this apply not only to peanut, but does it apply to other foods? Do the results of LEAP apply to all societies and all cultures? And what infants and children should see a specialist before you actually introduce them with uh, peanuts um, or other food allergens? Well, the LEAP-ON study was very interesting because it examined whether the benefit of early introduction persisted if continued peanut consumption was stopped. So what they did was they took um, the, the, this cohort of LEAP patients and they took them, they treated them for their five years with peanut and then they stopped peanut completely. They were not allowed to take peanut products. And what they found is that when they re-challenged them, when they reintroduced peanut after a year, there was no associated increase in risk for peanut allergy when refed. Now this is a pretty interesting observation because they demonstrate the potential to become permanently tolerant to peanut through early exposure. And this also has implications for the long-term benefits of the treatment modalities, which I'm going to talk about in a little bit, for peanut and possibly even other food allergies. I apologize for all the information on this slide, but let me just summarize it by saying this Again, was a British study um, in, called the EAT study, inquiring about tolerance, and it looked at the feasibility of an early allergenic food introduction regimen. And what they basically did in this study was they took infants that were breastfed as one group and continued just breast, exclusive breastfeeding and took another group and they introduced multiple allergens, multiple food allergens, not only peanut, but eggs, milk, sesame, whitefish, and wheat. 
and the goal was to determine whether this strategy would prevent food allergies compared to exclusively breastfed infants. These were not typically, these were not the classic bad eczema kids um, or egg allergic kids like in, um, in the LEAP study. Um, these were just all, all infants. Now, in those that were adherent, there was a significantly lower risk of food allergy in the early introduction group, but in the per-protocol analysis, I'm sorry, but in the intention to, intent to treat group, this was not the case. So, in other words, the, the, the findings of the study did not confirm that early introduction was definitively uh, beneficial. Now, so a lot more research needs to be done in this regard, but it does suggest the possibility, at least in uh, some of the population, that if you introduce foods early, you may prevent food allergies. And this is just uh, the graph of that. Um, as you can see in the top, the intention to treat group with introduce one or more foods was not clinically significant. The blue bar, standard introduction. The green bar, early introduction, not significant. Whereas in the per-protocol analysis, uh, early introduction was, did, did show significant benefit over standard introduction. So in other words, more data is, is, is really necessary in this regard. So based upon the LEAP study and the LEAP-ON study, um, the NIAID, National Institute of Asthma and Infectious Diseases, came out with new guidelines that were just published in January. Uh, and reproduced in a variety of medical journals and online. And it looked really, again, focusing on children who had peanut allergy, uh, egg, I'm sorry, severe eczema, egg allergy, or both. And it said strongly consider assess the status of peanut by specific IgE measurements or skin prick tests. And based upon these results, introduce peanut-containing foods as early as four to six months of age. Guideline 2 said in patients who had mild eczema, introduce peanut-containing foods around six months of age. And Guideline 3 said if you, the child is not apparently at risk, has no eczema um, or any other food allergy, introduce according to age-appropriate guidelines, uh, age-appropriate behavior and family practices and cultural, uh, cultural preferences. So this algorithm may be very helpful to, to those of you who are seeing these, these children come into your office. Bad eczema, uh, may have an egg allergy by history, may not have ever been exposed to egg. It may be appropriate for, for you, especially since it may be a while, uh, and certainly in other areas where access to specialist care may be not as, as good, to introduce, to, to do a peanut-specific IgE test on these patients. And if the level is less than 0.35 on the blood test, the risk of reaction is low. In fact, over 90% will have negative skin test of peanut. Introduce peanut at home or supervise feeding in the office. If a patient does have an elevated IgE level greater than 0.35, refer to a specialist for consultation and skin prick skin testing. And over on the right side, you see how I uh, manage and interpret these. If I see these children and their skin tests are very small, I may just have them introduce peanut at home. If the skin test sides are intermediate between three and seven millimeter wheel with surrounding erythema, I may do a supervised feeding or a graded challenge in the office. And if the skin test is very large, I would opt not to 
uh, go forward. So how, in what way do we get peanuts into very young kids, especially two grams of peanut protein three times a week? Well, two grams equals approximately two teaspoons of peanut butter. So get sm thin, smooth peanut butter, measure it out, add two, two to three teaspoons of hot water, let it cool, and then feed it to the baby, or mix it with a tolerated fruit or vegetable. There's also a snack called bamba that some of you may, may be aware of. It's an Israeli food snack. It's available now at many, uh, certainly at Whole Foods and many other uh, uh, supermarkets. And they're very small, and the, the babies like it. It's like a puffed, uh, puffed wheat or rice, but it's all point all peanut protein. And the doses, the, the amount would be 21 pieces which you can soften with four to six teaspoons of water for older infants or can feed it unmodified, and the kids tend to gobble it up uh, pretty readily. So these, this site I got from the Canadian Pediatric Society, and this would be applicable probably to all of us. So the recent recommendations to prevent food allergies include no restriction of maternal diet is recommended during pregnancy or lactation exclusive breastfeeding for the first six months or using a hydrolyzed cow's milk formula if necessary. Do not delay the introduction of any specific solid foods beyond six months of age. Except for the data on peanut, more research is needed on the early introduction of specific foods to prevent allergy. But once you introduce the foods, regular ingestion appears to be important in maintaining tolerance. So how do we evaluate kids who, who we know already may have a food allergy? Well, if we suspect an IgE-mediated allergy, it's very important not to obtain panels or broad screening without supporting history because a high rate of false positives. Don't send off with just a panel of 15 or 20 foods. The problem is because there's a very, especially in kids who have eczema, there's a high rate of false positives tests. The in vitro test for food-specific IgE are called immunocap tests, formerly known as RAS tests. Uh, uh, they are quantitative and sometimes the numbers can be helpful in determining the likelihood of reacting. Skin prick tests, uh, which, which obviously an allergist does, are, are, are rapid, lower costs in the blood tests and give you immediate results. And when indicated oral challenges may be necessary to clarify the diagnosis of a suspected IgE-mediated allergy. Inter interpreting these laboratory tests, positive skin test or food-specific Ig indicates the presence of Ig antibody, not clinical reactivity. It's about a 90% sensitivity, but only a 50% specificity. It's important to note that large skin tests with very high IgE levels don't tell you how severe the reaction is going to be. So if you see a level, I look at the num the absolute numbers, but if you look at uh, some people. We'll, we'll look at levels, level one through level six, thereabouts. That doesn't tell you how severe the allergy is going to be. It just tells you about the likelihood of reactivity. There's a little one caveat to that I'm going to show you shortly with regard to peanut and maybe some other foods. And negative skin or blood tests essentially excludes food allergy with a very high specificity. And this is where the, the newer testing called component resolved diagnostics comes in. Peanut is not just a total, one total IgE level. It's composed of, of nine or more proteins 
called RH123, etc. And just to, as a distinction, when you send off blood work on peanut and soon to be with other tree nuts and some other foods, you should send off a peanut component panel. And RH1, 2, and 3 are seed storage proteins that are associated with more severe reactions. They are heat resistant, and um, when you see a high RH2 level, that patient may more likely have a severe allergy. In contrast, RH8 is related to birch pollen allergy. They cross-react with each other uh, with birch. And if elevated, it's associated with milder allergies, such as the oral allergy syndrome symptoms uh, associated with, um, uh, with, with itchy mouth, itchy throat, or even no allergy symptoms at all. And this may be helpful, obviously, in determining what type of reaction a patient is going to have to peanut, determining when to challenge and also determining when they may be candidates for some treatment modalities, such as oral immunotherapy. Management of food allergies, I don't need to go into any great detail. Epinephrine is still the, the, the first six initial treatments for, for treating food allergies. It should always, it's important, I think, to have two doses of epinephrine available at all times because over 10% of children and even close to 20% of adults may require a second dose. Emergency transport to a hospital, not because you've actually used epinephrine, but because a patient may have a biphasic reaction. So they should be sent to the emergency room and observed for a minimum of, I would say, four to six hours, longer depending upon the severity of the reaction. Antihistamines alone will not stop anaphylaxis. Um, they likely won't mask an anaphylactic reaction, but they, uh, and they certainly won't stop it. So uh, that shouldn't be your first line of treatment. And despite all this, uh, EMTs and emergency departments, although children's is much better, are very reluctant to use epinephrine for patients who have food allergies, as we all know. And um, I mean, these kids really struggle with their symptoms before they get appropriate treatment. So what are we left with? We, we have a, we've, we've done prevention. Um, we've done um, the diagnosis. You have a patient with a diagnosis of a food allergy. Well, the food allergy guidelines still recommend strict avoidance and treatment of systemic reactions with injectable epinephrine. That's the avoidance management strategy, or AMS. But it creates a lot of burdens for many affected children and their families, as, as many of us will know. It results in Symptoms of fear, anxiety, even mental health issues. Uh, some children develop OCD, and, and overall impairment in quality of life. These these strategies are, are difficult and challenging to implement in schools and social environments, as all of us we we know. And despite the available information, there are still quite a few families that don't know how to manage food allergy emergencies. Some of the other additional realistic concerns over the AMS strategy is accidental exposure to peanut occurs in many allergic children over a five-year period, hidden allergens or cross-contamination. Many result in moderate to severe reaction. Auto-injectors are not carried when they should be carried. Available epinephrine is often not used when indicated. And then there's, of course, the high-risk population that we see, the, the teenagers and young adults who refuse to carry their epinephrine, engage in unsafe behavior, 
and those are the ones at the greatest risk for severe reactions. And even food allergy avoidance is, is difficult for many of the, the best of us um, as we read, do label reading that's required. Um, and that takes us now to a different area and the most, I think is the most exciting area, which is probably the most rewarding aspect of being an allergy practice for uh, over 25 years. It's actually the, now that we can, now we have options for treating children and adults as well with food allergy. And some of these modalities I'll talk about, specifically oral immunotherapy, which I obviously have a lot of experience with, but I'll talk about slit or sublingual immunotherapy, the patch, which many of you probably have heard about as well, we'll talk about food contained in capsules that are being commercially available. There are FDA approved products. I'm gonna to touch on those. OIT in combination with anti-IgE called Zolaire. And then some other approaches such as desensitizing with baked goods for patients who have milk or egg allergy and even Chinese herbal formulas that are used for treating food allergies with um, a mild to moderate degree of success. With just some background about oral immunotherapy, it's nothing new. Alexander the Great did it. He would ingest small amounts of arsenic before he would go into battle, and then uh, that would uh, desensitize him to, um, to exposure. The first reported successful oral desensitization was published in 1908, and really only over the past two decades or so have there been many clinical studies published on oral immunotherapy and a lot of experience. When I started doing oral immunotherapy about uh, six, six and a half years ago, there were about a half dozen people around the country dabbling in it. Now there are probably about 70 or more allergists doing as part of their private practice. It's starting to gain wider acceptance, even among the academic community, although reluctantly so because of their uh, biases and, and uh, investments in some of the other products and conflict of interest and so forth. Um, but it's become a very safe and effective treatment, which we're going to talk about. So let me, let me just come up with a couple definitions. There are two main issues in terms of treating patients with oral immunotherapy. There's desensitization and there's tolerance. Desensitization temporarily raises the threshold of an allergen required to, to cause an allergic reaction. It can be short-term or prolonged with ongoing treatment. And the goal primarily is to protect patients from life-threatening anaphylaxis, making it bite-proof in a sense. Over time, once patients have been on oral immunotherapy for a while, they may be able to actually eat serving-sized portions, like a peanut butter sandwich or Reese's peanut butter cup, but many times that takes a while and patients are initially challenged, obviously, with the serving size portion. But what's very uh, distinct from that is, is tolerance, and that's the permanent loss of the allergic reactivity due to changes in the immune response, as we saw with the LEAP-ON study. This may allow discontinuation of oral immunotherapy, and a patient is tantamount is cured of their, their food allergy. So two goals of uh, oral immunotherapy. So how does OIT work? Well, it actually results in an active immune response, as you would expect in the GI tract. Activates dendritic cells in the mucosa, which result in 
modulation of the effector cells. It's mediated primarily by regulatory T cells um, or other mechanisms that are being uh, theorized as well. And there are humoral immunologic changes that may play a role, uh, such as a fall in the specific Ig level, which is very exciting to see in the course of treatment. It's actually their total IgE, or specific IgE to peanut and other foods actually starts to come down. And a rise in specific IgG4 levels, which is felt to be protective in, in food allergy. This cartoon just uh, points to that, how OIT suppresses inf inflammatory dendritic cells, activates T regulatory cells, and effectively suppresses Th1 and more importantly Th2 helper cells, suppresses IgE, induces IgG4, and actually suppresses the pro-inflammatory cells important in allergies such as mast cells and eosinophils. So how does OIT work? Well, it's, it's really uh, fairly simplistic, although v quite labor-intensive. Uh, mix the allergenic food in a vehicle such as applesauce or pudding or yogurt and ingesting it in gradually increasing doses. The protocols, if you've seen one protocol, you've seen one protocol. They vary considerably, and there are uh, efforts now being uh, I'm part of a, a national group that is hoping to come up with some standardized protocols for OIT, uh, both in terms of dosing, frequency, duration of therapy, and type of food used. They all vary considerably. The materials can be purchased in local food stores or online, uh, whereas those performing clinical research often get uh, investigational new drug approval with FDI, FDA oversight which is controversial among those of us doing it in the community because it's not a drug really, it's a food. And depending on who you speak with the, the FDA, they have different opinions. And typically there's a dose escalation phase, a buildup phase, and a home maintenance phase. And this, this just shows us specifically what some of these different phases are. Uh, from Robert Wood at, at Hopkins, the initial escalation Initial dose is there's a, is escalation days, the escalation day, the dose buildup phase, and the maintenance phase. And I'll show you what we do. On our initial escalation day, we, we begin with as low as 0.1 milligrams of peanut protein, and we increase it every 30 minutes to a maximum of about 6 milligrams. The patient takes a top tolerated dose at home once daily. The buildup phase, they return every two weeks for updosing. Our current maintenance dose is, is equivalent to five, so we build them up from 0.1 milligrams to be consuming between five and 10 peanuts or peanut M&Ms daily, which is one to two grams of peanut protein, and they maintain that top dose, and we have them back in six months for retesting and possibly a peanut challenge to see how much they, they can tolerate. The patient commitment is, is is, is certainly significant on the first day. It takes about six hours to do that initial desensitization day. They complete daily diaries, they're examined. The doses are sent home in these little cups, which I'll show you shortly. And the process generally in our hands takes about 10 months or so to do. Now there are others out there that, that do it in a quicker regimen, like lat may take five or six months, some even shorter using some other modalities. 
but um, we we believe in a, the, a slow and steady prog, uh, process. Side effects are not uncommon as you would expect. GI symptoms are probably the most common, followed by cutaneous and respiratory symptoms. The most common symptoms are itchy mouth and throat, some reflux symptoms, abdominal pain and nausea. That can be modified by lowering the dose and going up slower. Uh, sometimes we add an H2 blocker to, to, to help them during the, during the early dose phases when these symptoms are most prevalent. And uh, eosinophilic esophagitis, or EOE, is a complication of OIT. It's not common, but it's not certainly not rare. We've seen it in only about in less than 1% of our patients, but it, is, uh, it, it does occur. We have to make patients aware of it, and it's typically, although not 100% reversible uh, upon removing the food allergen. It may take time. And in a very, very small percentage of children, it doesn't, doesn't go away, uh, away. But that's, a, that's probably one or two out of the uh, 10 or 11 uh, patients that we've experienced patients having EOE. Systemic reactions do occur during oral immunotherapy, observed in about 10.5% of our patients. Epinephrine and ED visits have been needed. We've seen no fatal or near-fatal reactions. Fortunately, we and others have been able to identify a number of risk factors for systemic reactions, such as exercising right after taking their dose, having a febrile illness, taking a hot, even a hot shower or hot bath, anything that's going to increase the metabolic rate, uncontrolled asthma, or bad seasonal allergies. So we give them advice that if they have a fever to hold the dose for a day or two, for them, for the children, not to exercise for two hours after taking their dose, which needs to be worked into their, their lifestyle, obviously, particularly with very young kids. And there are other cofactors listed here as well. The, the less than 10% of patients who are not able to be desensitized, 37% drop out because of GI symptoms, systemic reactions, or next, EOE, uh, uncontrolled asthma, and non-adherence is actually a pretty small percentage of patients. Most of our patients over time continue, and we've been following them, and we continue to follow up on them. Patients who started four, five, six years ago, we're looking at that data very carefully now, but it appears that most remain adherent to treatment. These are just what these uh, cups look like of, of doses. Um, starting at the low doses and building up. We don't use the, that high dose, as you can see. That's, this is from another, another group, but it's, you get the idea of it. This is one of my more challenging patients who wouldn't take her dose for weeks and weeks and weeks, and then finally we got her to progress. She was one of our, my earliest patients, and uh, very proud to, to know that, to, to hear that she's taking five peanut M&Ms every day. So how can OIT impact the quality of life of patients and their families? Well, when we started out, we, we did this as part of a study. Um, this was not uh, our intention to necessarily continue this long term. But we looked at a, the first 100 patients, children, enrolled in an open IRB trial, a peanut OIT, measured food allergy-specific quality of life using surveys pre and post-treatment. The parameters studied include emotional impact, food allergy, anxiety, et cetera. 
And this was, and our, our work was the first published study showing a significant benefit of peanut OIT on food allergy associated quality of life. Improvement was seen in all the parameters measured where parents assessed children, teenagers, in fact, their assessment and their quality of life greatly improved as well. 90% of our patients have, be, have been able to achieve a maintenance dose um, in, uh, with peanut OIT. And obviously, OIT does make a huge difference in patients' lives. So when is it best to start oral immunotherapy? Well, it may be best to start it on the youngest children because the immune system is very sort of fluid. It's plastic, more plasticity. We hypothesized, it was hypothesized by others that targeting newly diagnosed young food allergic children would provide the best opportunity to enhance the clinical effectiveness of OIT, interrupting allergy priming before its maturation in a sense. And sustained unresponsiveness occurs when a patient desensitized with OIT then stops treatment, still maintains a desensitized state. Uh, tantamount to tolerance or, or uh, a cure. This study by Brian Vickery at uh, UNC last year actually was very, uh, very interesting. It looked at children as young as nine months of age and they enrolled them in a peanut OIT trial. After a median of, of uh, two, 29 months of treatment with peanut OIT, 91% achieved sustained unresponsive. That means Nine out of every 10 child, child could be treated with OIT and then stop it and then was cured of their allergy. So it seemed like that newly pre diagnosed preschool children may have the most favorable clinical and immunologic characteristics for successful oral immunotherapy. So just a, a, a brief comments on what we do at our center. We, we have a dedicated facility. It's, it's sort of separate from my main allergy practice. We're one of the few people who do OIT in this country as a separate center. Many allergists are doing it sort of as a um, arm of their practice. And they have patients in their waiting room who are being treated with asthma, allergy shots, OIT. We established a, a dedicated separate center for doing this because we felt that that would be the most safe and, and, and effective environment for doing that. Um, our treatment period, 2010 to present, we've treated probably close to 900 patients now with peanut allergy and probably close to 1,000 patients total if you include tree nuts, milk, egg, and sesame. Patients have been, the age range is 4 to 45 years, median age was 9 years, and we've now been actually treating children as young as 2 to 4 based upon that data by Vickery. And the safety issues are constantly being addressed and and, and uh, we found that there's an acceptable safety profile with the knowledge that there are adverse effects and systemic reactions in a small percent. So what are common concerns about oral immunotherapy? My patient is too severe of a peanut allergy to be treated. Well, those are the kids that we really want to treat. Those who have uh, severe re reactions are those that are the best candidates for oral immunotherapy and do just as well. Peanut-specific IgE, the blood tests come back at 80 or 100. They're too high or too, skin tests too big to, to treat. Well, that's not true either because about 40% of our patients have IgE levels greater than that 100, greater than 100 level and, and uh, respond uh, well to this treatment. 
side effects are frequent, which is somewhat true, and severe, which I think is not entirely true. The cost of treatment may be prohibitive. We found that the, um, the commercial insurers do pay for the oral immunotherapy, and the insurances have been on board for the past four years, and uh, most of the other doctors around the country that are doing oral immunotherapy um, do get reimbursed, and patients do not have out-of-pocket costs. Um, the risk of EOE is high with treatment is another common misconception. We talked about that. And patients have to take the daily food indefinitely. Well, that may not be entirely true either for very young children. I'm going to talk briefly about some of the other modalities of treatment, and then we'll wrap up. Uh, this is sublingual immunotherapy, or SLIT. And SLIT is also used for food allergy treatment. And it has some advantages, certainly. It's effective for hazelnut, peanut, cow's milk, and even other foods. Several published studies with peanut showed its effect, it's effective, and the side effects are pretty mild. There's this oral itching, uncommonly requiring treatment. So because it doesn't actually go directly down to the, the stomach, it's absorbed to the mouth, uh, the symptoms are local. You bypass the, the, the gastrointestinal tract. Um, and shown that this can be an effective therapy, and, other, and some are, uh, around the country are doing SLIT for foods. There are a few comparative studies, however, oral immunotherapy was more effective in desensitization than SLIT. This is the famous allergy patch, or the soon-to-be famous allergy patch. This is a very well-funded uh, product. A lot of the uh, well-known people in the field have invested a lot of time and effort into this particular modality. An allergen is placed on uh, the disc. It's, it's called epicutaneous immunotherapy. The application of an allergen-containing patch designed to activate the Langerhans cells in the skin, result, resulting in systemic downregulation. The company is DBV Technologies, if you're interested in investing in it. Uh, it's very well-funded. Well Adverse effects are not uncommon locally uh, in the majority of actively treated patients, and it works. It seems to work better in younger children. A recent phase three study showed that it was very effective. Uh, well, it was modestly effective. I'd say 40, 46% uh, according to the study um, in children as young as 4 to 11, but it was not that effective in older children and it's likely to be released next year. It may come in handy in patients who either don't tolerate OIT or patients who are on maintenance with OIT and don't want to have to take their oral dose long term. They may switch over to something like the patch, and this is how it looks applied to the skin. Another uh, important treatment that's going to be coming out that's going to be made available probably to general practitioners as well as allergists is, is something called CODIT, Characterized Oral Desensitization Immunotherapy, and the company's A-Immune, again, uh, maybe worth looking into investing if you're so inclined. Um, use standardized pharmaceutical-grade food allergies in capsules. And so what is interesting about it is that it's, these capsules are all pre-made up so that it doesn't have to be measured out as we do in our office by using high-precision uh, scales and staff to do that. The downside of that is when patients may need, may need intermediate doses or may not, you can't, it's, 
it's hard to tailor-made treatment for every individual patient and that's what this is doing um, so it probably has some utility you'll see a lot about it in the next year or two I'm sure um, and they have an FDA approved product um, Chinese herb baked milk and egg consumption is used to desensitize for children who have a milk allergy who tolerate baked goods with milk if you give them baked milk products on a regular basis like daily or four more times a week that'll help speed up the process of them outgrowing those food allergies. It's similarly true for, for egg. And these are what the capsules that company it's marketing look like. Okay. And the final modality of treatment is called Zolaire. Zolaire I'm sure you're familiar with is used for, it's recently been approved in children, six to 12. It's been available for a number of years for adults um, in treating moderate to severe asthma. It's also been approved for chronic urticaria. And what it is, is it, it's an uh, IgG, anti-IgE antibody. It combines with the FC portion of the IgE molecule and prevents these IgE molecules from binding to cell surface receptors on inflammatory cells such as mast cells. Um, also downregulates these receptors on the surface of mast cells. Um, it's a biologic agent. Uh, it's, it's, it, and, it, and it really has shown to be very effective in those conditions. Now it also seems to be effective using it as an adjunct for different or oral immunotherapy. There are some researchers around the country that, are, uh, that have it available for, for foods. It, it's most data is focused on improving safety of OIT by administering concurrently with oral immunotherapy. Patients with severe milk allergy, there has been significant improvement noted in all safety endpoints as well as shorter time to reach a maintenance dose. Similarly, a study with peanut showed patients could reach a maintenance dose not in a matter of months or longer, but in eight weeks. Only 2% experience an allergic reaction. So it does seem to reduce systemic reaction rate, although it may not have any significant effect on gastrointestinal adverse effects, but it does reduce systemic reaction rate. And importantly, it doesn't seem to have any difference in terms of measure of efficacy. So it doesn't make OIT work better, it just maybe make it safer. So in summarizing, um, when is it reasonable to refer for evaluation? Well, patients who have a known food allergy for ongoing management and follow-up for possibly developing tolerance to their food allergy. When food-specific IgE levels are undetectable in a child who's clearly had a reaction or has a convincing history, you may want to refer that patient so we can do an assessment and then maybe a, a supervised oral food challenge. When food-specific IgE levels indicate sensitization prior to the known food being introduced uh, and known diagnosis of food allergy at risk for other food allergies such as those who have uh, an egg allergy, severe eczema, a high risk for peanut allergy, um, especially if you get an IgE level back that's elevated. And obviously to explore other treatment options for food allergies and this is our this is just our contact information for our New England Food Allergy Treatment Center if it's something you want to look at. Uh, the website is, is, is hopefully pretty informative as well. 
So I'm going to finish by just asking a couple questions, just, just to see if we're all on the same page. A five-month-old breastfed male who was given a small amount of scrambled egg and developed an acute urticarial rash on face and neck, his severe atopic dermatitis. The pediatrician ordered some blood work. The serum Ig levels were elevated to egg 3.5, milk, peanut was 1.1. Total Ig was elevated. Based upon these findings and patient history, which is the following is advisable regarding peanut exposure? And these are the four options. One is serum Ig level to peanut is really low, so it may be reasonable to offer peanut three times a week, uh, starting now to maintain tolerance. Advise the infant as uh, the infant have skin testing to confirm to uh, to peanut first before proceeding with any further recommendations. Peanut level is elevated, so best to avoid peanut in this child. And four, wait until eight to 12 months of age when the infant could more safely consume peanut products. And the correct answer is two, advised, because the Ig level is greater than le less than 0 0.35, uh, greater than uh, 0 0.35, so it's positive so it's not probably not safe to do a challenge in your office. It's, it's a low number, but it's still positive, and the patient should probably be skin tested to see the size of the skin test and determine whether a challenge should be offered. Which statement is true about food allergy conditions? FPIs often presents in infancy as vomiting, diarrhea, and anaphylaxis. Initial treatment should be injectable epinephrine. Well, that's not true because it's not anaphylaxis. Eosinophilic esophagitis is often due to a food allergy and may be managed by an elimination diet. IgE-mediated conditions include allergic enterocolitis and gluten-sensitive enteropathy. Those are not IgE-mediated conditions. ARAH8 is a peanut component protein associated with severe allergic reactions. It's ARAH2, or 1, 2, and 3 that are associated with more severe reactions. So the right answer is 2. And finally, what statement is true about the treatment options for food allergy? The patch has shown comparable efficacy in recent trials with OIT. SLIT has an excellent safety profile and seems to be as robust in clinical trials with milk and egg to OIT. Zolaire injectable biological agent improves safety and overall efficacy when combined with OIT. And OIT may result in sustained unresponsiveness in a significant percentage of very young children treated. Well, one is not accurate because the, the patch is not as efficacious as OIT. Same is true for SLIT, which is, does have an excellent safety profile, but it's not as robust. Zolaire does improve safety, but does not improve overall efficacy. And OIT, and the correct answer, therefore, is four. Okay, and this is one of our favorite patients and one of our successes as well. Thank you.